Welcome back to A Push for Understanding. This is chapter 28 of Spielbogel, Cold War and a New Western World. We're finally to the Cold War. These are the last uh, three chapters. And so, you know, we just got to get through these last three chapters. And then we hit the AP test. And uh, I don't know, we'd probably do it all again next year. Um, but let's focus on uh, the problems today. Look, the Cold War, it's... if I had to summarize it in one sentence. It's long-running tensions between the United States and the Soviet Union for about 40 to 50 years, depending on when you really want to start the beginning of the Cold War. Um, and so this prolonged conflict, although it's not really a conflict, uh, between the United States and the Soviet Union is a very indirect conflict. It is um, a race in technology, in nuclear arms, a race for uh, how many countries you can get on your side, an economic battle, a social battle, a cultural battle, uh, for who will rule the world and which ideology between capitalism and, um, and communism is going to dominate world policy and economic policy, but also political policy, economic policy, social policy, etc., etc. So there is a, a lot at stake during the Cold War, um, not to mention, of course, the entire future of humanity and the existence of humanity, because both sides have nuclear weapons. And that's why this war predominantly stays cold, because uh, the United States and the Soviet Union cannot fight against each other. And so... Uh, that's kind of my summary at the beginning of this. Let's actually get into what is the Cold War. And uh, the book starts this chapter off by trying to assign who is at most fault for this. Who between the United States and the Soviet Union escalates this the most. And in my opinion, and I believe the opinion of the book, it's kind of a pointless argument. They both take um, sort of unnecessary and also necessary steps, uh, which the other views as... Uh, feeding into the tension uh, and trying to isolate the others. Uh, some of the things we do are uh, the Soviets install puppets in the Eastern Bloc countries, basically establishing a, a, a puppet government in each Eastern country that they, quote, liberate after World War II. Uh, Truman, for his part, announces his Truman Doctrine, which allows the United States to involve in any country struggling between capitalism and communism. This is the direct intervention in Greece and Turkey right after World War II. Uh, the Marshall Plan uh, excludes the Eastern Bloc countries in the Soviet Union. That's about $6 billion uh, hoping to restore damage done uh, to the Western countries during World War II. Uh, this is a, a battle against communism and trying to sort of rebuild uh, Western Europe with the pretense of stabilizing these countries so they don't fall to communism. Uh, Truman also announces his containment policy, which seeks to isolate the Soviet Union, essentially saying that we're not going to fight communism directly. Any country where communism exists now is sort of off the table. But if any country's uh, struggling with uh, communist influence or communist sentiments, we are going to get involved. And if there's a civil war, we're going to back the anti-communists. Um, and then the final thing is a, a growing debate over what Germany is going to look like. The occupation zones were not intended to be permanent. However, the Allies are incapable of agreeing on pretty much anything. And so the United States and Soviet Union do not want to concede either a communist or a capitalist a united Germany. And so Germany stays divided uh, between a Western 
Germany and in Eastern Germany, uh, as well as Berlin stays divided between a West Berlin and an East Berlin. And because Berlin is fully encompassed about 100 miles uh, outside of uh, West Germany itself, uh, Stalin attempts to sort of wrestle it out of Western control and announces that he's going to blockade the region. He's not going to allow uh, any transportation, any resources to get into Berlin itself. And this basically puts the Allies in that it gives them three options. They can either um, declare war on the Soviet Union and invade the Soviet Union, which is not going to happen. They're not going to start World War III. They could also back down and give up uh, West Berlin, which they also don't want to do. They, they saw what Neville Chamberlain did with appeasement with Hitler, and they do not want to appease Stalin like they did Hitler. And so they settle for a third option, flying supplies into West Berlin via airlift. And that begins the Berlin airlift, which is largely successful. Uh, uh, I think planes are landing at, at its height. Planes are landing every four minutes in West Berlin. And this allows uh, the Allies to supply uh, West Berlin until Stalin eventually backs down over a year later. And so all this tension beginning the Cold War certainly amounts to a lot of anger and a lot of uh, frustration between the two, uh, the Soviet Union and the United States, I mean. And so new alliances are also formed. Uh, so as these tensions begin, an arms race begins uh, with each side trying to build up their nuclear arms. The United Kingdom and France both invest in nuclear arms as well. And by the 1950s, I believe they both have nuclear weapons. Um, but eventually, uh, as the Soviets begin testing nuclear weapons and actually get their first nuclear bomb well ahead of the United States, uh, the United States' prediction, an arms race begins between the Soviet Union and the United States, trying to uh, sort of compete with each other to see how many nuclear arms they could have. It is um, probably the worst race you could have, um, and naturally the buildup of so many nuclear weapons makes people realize that if these things are ever used against each other, uh, the whole world will end. And so this mutual deterrence exists between the two, and both sides recognize that uh, you know, if everybody dies, and this is true, it's not good. Um, and so both sides uh, sort of agree silently not to destroy the world, uh, while also sort of turning to their own allies and creating their own factions. So for the United States, they form the NATO alliance, which includes the United Kingdom, France, Belgium, the Netherlands, Luxembourg, Denmark, Iceland, Italy, Norway, Portugal, and Canada, as well as the United States, of course. The Soviet Union, in turn, uh, forms the Warsaw Pact, which includes uh, Albania, Bulgaria, Czechoslovakia, East Germany, Hungary, Poland, and Romania. Later, Greece, Turkey, and Western Germany all join in uh, all join NATO in 1950. And so, naturally, these alliances are going to create what Churchill refers to as an Iron Curtain, uh, which essentially uh, essentially marks the divide between uh, Western Europe and Eastern Europe. Uh, that a complete uh, sort of polar world exists between Western Europe uh, and their capitalism and largely their democracies, and Eastern Europe with their uh, dictatorial regimes and their communist influences. And so as these alliances build up, they both begin to feel tensions around the world. Uh, in Korea, after Mao wins in China, the conflict becomes uh, truly global. 
in that communism is seen as a threat to every country, not just European countries. And zooming back a little bit, when Japan loses World War II, the Korean Peninsula is occupied in the south by the United States and in the north by the Soviet Union. Unification between uh, North and South Korea were planned. If you know anything about uh, contemporary history, you know that that did not happen <laughs> and will probably uh, never happen, at least within our lifetimes. Um, so while unification was planned, it did not realistically happen, and there was no way it was going to realistically happen when tensions spiked like they did. So in the 1950s, North Korea launches a surprise invasion against South Korea. Uh, they succeed pretty well, taking over most of South Korea right away, but a UN mission led by the United States uh, launches an attack uh, in the remaining parts of South Korea and is able to push North Korea nearly out of their own country, defeating North Korea. Until Mao intervenes, he's concerned that the United States will have a direct border on uh, China itself, and so he sends in millions of Chinese soldiers and intervenes and stalemates the conflict, pushing the conflict back basically to where it very much began. So North Korea pushes all the way down, the United States pushes all the way up, and then China and the United States stalemate right where it all started. And so basically nothing changes. And after two years of stalemate, an armistice is signed, a little territorially changes, but the United States is isolated. They are uh, sort of kicked out of a lot of their agreements with the NATO countries and the Western countries at large. And they sign the Sino-Soviet Pact, sort of uh, confirming this agreement between China and the Soviet Union that they will be allies. Another war that shows the tensions within the Cold War era is the First Vietnam War. Ho Chi Minh forms the Viet Minh. Uh, they are able to rise up in North Vietnam against the French. The French uh, own uh, Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia, or French Indochina. After World War II, the territories returned from Japan, who occupied it during World War II. Um, but a lot of anti-French sentiments begin to rise up in the north. Ho Chi Minh le leads the Viet Minh uh, through the conflict. The conflict becomes pretty global when China supports uh, Viet, uh, Ho Chi Minh and the Viet Minh uh, and communism in Vietnam, while the United States supports uh, the French, trying to eliminate the communists. Eventually, French surrenders in 1954, and North and South Vietnam are created, much like uh, North and South Korea were created. And then from this point on, we have an escalating of the Cold War again. The United States signs two new treaties, CENTO and CETO. CENTO is a treaty, the Central Treaty Organization for the Middle East. It includes the UK, Iran, Iraq, Pakistan, and Turkey, so a bunch of uh, American allies in the Middle East fearing communism, and CETO uh, is the Southeast Asian uh, Treaty Organization, which includes Australia, the United Kingdom, France, New Zealand, Pakistan, the Philippines, and uh, Thailand. So these are uh, Asian countries that are fearing communism and the spread of communism. Ultimately, this kind of lines up with the domino theory that the United States presents that if one country falls to uh, communism, countries around it will fall to communism, and then countries around those countries will fall to communism. Essentially, that communism is a domino, that the knocking over of one country will lead to the next, to the next, to the next, and then suddenly the whole world is communist. And so this idea of containment, containing communism, intervening when communism pops up, like a, a game of whack-a-mole almost, um, 
is sort of the United States policy. So while these do not lead to war, they are sort of a deterrence of war, that if you get involved with these countries, if you mess with these countries, we're not going to let them. So, uh, you know, the, the this Iron Curtain in Europe also begins to spread around the world as Western nations uh, sort of begin to protect and use their influence to say that these countries are off guard. You can't invade Iran, like the Soviet Union can't get involved in Iran and install a communist regime there. That would not be allowed. Um, for a small moment, there's a hope that escalations will deteriorate and that we might get out of a Cold War. And that happens when Stalin dies. Uh, many hoped that Stalin's death would ease tensions, but as uh, Nikita Khrushchev uh, comes into power, uh, he begins to escalate the war a little bit more. He sends two ultimatums to the West uh, about Berlin, and he sort of backs down from these ultimatums, uh, recognizing that they were a little too much, and he resorts to building a wall around West Berlin, making sure that people from East Berlin and East Germany can't immigrate into West uh, West Berlin and emigrate out of West Berlin into the capitalist countries, which was a real problem. About one-fifth of the German population was immigrating to Western Germany at that point. Um, additionally, escalations rise when Fidel Castro overthrows Cuba. The United States freaks out about this because Cuba is very close, and so they attempt the Bay of Pigs invasion which fails absolutely miserably. It was a plan to send um, ex-Cuban soldiers who supported capitalism in the United States back into Cuba to overthrow the government. The United States does not fund this very well, and those ex-Cuban soldiers um, pretty much all die right away, and it becomes a pretty big embarrassment. And so the Soviets decide at this point to use, to use Cuba and its tactical advantage uh, being so close to the United States to station nuclear weapons on the island of Cuba. The United States gets word of this. They blockade Cuba, saying that Soviet ships are not going to be able to get through. Eventually, both powers back down, recognizing that, hey, uh, we don't want to end the world over this. Um, because again, ending the world, not a good idea. And so the final agreement is that the United States will remove nukes from Turkey, which is very close to the Soviet Union. Actually, very close to the Soviet Union, puts it kind of mildly. It, it, it borders the Soviet Union, and the Soviet Union will not put nukes in Cuba, which is right off the coast of Florida. Um, additionally, the event decreases the boldness of both nations. They recognize that they came a little too close to ending the world, and so they truly recognize the danger that playing with nuclear weapons like they are uh, toys is not a good idea. Um, truly some incredible thinking and um, intense uh, sort of philosophical thinking from our leaders at this point. Uh, but they also established direct contact, contact excuse me, between D.C. and Moscow. I believe it's called the Red Phone. It allows the president of the United States to call the leader of the Soviet Union. Uh, before then, they were communicating through unreliable back channels between the Soviet Union and the United States. So the direct installment of uh, a direct phone line between the two is far better for uh, world tensions and allows them to de-escalate conflicts before they become escalated to the point of, you know, nearly destroying the entire world. Moving past the main events of the Cold War, if you can really do that at this time, most things are connected directly back to the Cold War. Let's talk about decolonization. So 
the reason decolonization takes place right after World War II is mostly for two reasons. Uh, first of all, a lot of uh, colonies and a lot of colonized people fought in World War II, and a lot of them felt like they both deserved uh, freedom, which, you know, they absolutely did. They fought on behalf of their own country that had colonized them, um, but they also made a lot of connections with a lot of fellow soldiers. And so if you were, say, in Britain, you would have most likely uh, had a lot of contact with Indian soldiers uh, who may have helped you storm the beaches of uh, Normandy or fought next to you on uh, the Italian peninsula or helped you cross the Rhine River. So like on a very human level, there were a lot of connections made uh, between different groups during this time period, uh, all to try and resist the Nazis. And so on a more personal level, that is one reason why a lot of returning soldiers came back uh, with a lot of different views. They also come back with different views on homosexuality, uh, because they had been living so close to a lot of men. But that's a whole different story. Um, the second reason, and this is probably the much larger reason is that a lot of European nations were so brutally weakened by World War II that it no longer um, was manageable to have such a large empire. And so countries like France, the UK, um, and Germany had become so brutally beat up that a lot of these nations couldn't actually own uh, so much of that land that they once did. Germany especially is unable to uh, take over so much land that while they didn't have any colonies overseas, they certainly would not be able to keep any land uh, that they had taken during World War II. And just because, uh, first of all, no allied nation would allow them to do that, but even logistically speaking, they had been so brutally beat up that it was not possible. But for France, the UK, and even countries that didn't get involved, like Portugal and Spain, a lot of people felt, un felt entitled um, to being decolonized, being freed, and giving independence to their own nations. And so oftentimes this was done quite brutally because, I mean, a lot of these empires did not want to give up their empire. Sometimes it was peaceful, though, and it was led mostly by urban intellectuals. Um, these urban intellectuals typically got degrees from colleges in Europe um, and had experienced sort of the uh, enlightenment ideals in European society and how, you know, Europe was this bastion of freedom. And then they'd go back to their own country and recognize that this, you know, this place that was a bastion of freedom was exploiting people and suppressing people's freedoms and rights in their own colonies. And so a lot of these intellectuals uh, at least form parties and form the beginning of the movement while oftentimes violence was necessary. So in Kenya, a lot of the Kenyans resort to terrorism, both in urban environments and rural environments. An army coup in 1952 overthrows the government of Egypt, which was essentially speaking a part of the UK, although on paper independent. France gives Morocco and Tunisia independence, um, but not Algeria. They view Algeria as a part of France. Uh, Algerian citizens, I believe, were given French citizenship um, and eventually, the Algerian people rise up, the Algerian nationalists fight hard, fight this brutal guerrilla uh, campaign that eventually turns the uh, French people against the French government and the French government's actions and the war, and the French eventually have to give Algeria its independence. In South Africa, apartheid continues even through independence. The reason this happens, and it's sort of complicated, but if you have, you got to sort of think about 
um, who is able to have enough power and influence during British rule, and that is largely going to be the white men who lived inside of South Africa already. And so when Britain decolonizes South Africa, the people who are already rich and powerful were the white men uh, who are going to become president and sort of run the country. And so naturally, they're going to keep the apartheid system by separating, um, you know, black people from white people. It's essentially South African um, Jim Crow is how I would best describe it. Um, it is a brutal system of racism within South Africa and a brutal example of how uh, even in independence, a lot of the systems that, um, you know, were made to exploit the people continued, even though these people uh we're not directly being colonized anymore. Um, eventually, the Europeans also give additional freedoms. By the 1960s, only Portugal had held their colonies, but brutal guerrilla warfares in Mozambique and Namibia, uh, or sorry, Mozambique and Angola, force uh, Portugal to give up these colonies as well. Ethnic, religious, and cultural lines are pretty much unaccounted for in these um, in these peace agreements and in these independence movements. Um, eventually, pretty much, it becomes well known, and it's sort of a joke even now, that the Europeans love to draw straight lines on maps, which looks great on a map, um, and the borders look very smooth. But as you can imagine, people don't live in straight lines. Um, and so these straight lines, which particularly dominate um, Africa and the Middle East, cause a lot of conflict within those areas. Um, and so a lot of ethnic, religious, and cultural conflicts are, are flared up in these times. Even today, a lot of ethnic conflicts and religious conflicts begin. Uh, and this creates basically a bureaucratic headache for a lot of these African nations who need to structure their own society and basically make their own country um, while still dealing with uh, another independence movement from multiple, sometimes ethnic, uh, minorities or sometimes ethnic majorities within their own country, like Rwanda, um, the Hindu, and the Tutu people uh, are fiercely divided over this, but they're they're put in the same country because um, because the Belgians who once owned their land had deemed it so that they were basically you know the same people, and so they put these two ethnic groups who had a long history of ethnic tension in the same country. And that just led to eventually the Rwandan genocide taking place. Um, moving past Africa and into the Middle East, basically the same thing happens here. Jordan, Syria, and Lebanon all gain independence from the UK and France. Israel is uh, an interesting place, as you can imagine. Um, Israel is sort of given protection from the United States as a homeland for the Jews after the Holocaust. It was recognized that keeping the Jews in Germany and a lot of these uh, places which had large Nazi influence probably wouldn't be that great. And so a lot of uh, Israelites and a lot of Jews are moved into Israel to, um, let's just say, a lot of controversy. Um, you know, the Arab nations uh, around Israel did not like this. And so they invade and fail to invade uh, Israel because Israel gets a lot of weapons and money from the United States. The United States absolutely supports Israel. Uh, even today, uh, Israel is a very close ally of the United States, and the United States sends Israel quite a bit of money. Um, but 
you know, I'm not going to say too much about Israel, because that's a great way to get assassinated. Um, but essentially, Israel is created as a country, whether Israel exists within Palestine, or whether Palestine is real, or whether the Palestinian people have a rightful claim to that land. Uh, I'm not willing to have that argument right now. This is a Cold War uh, podcast. Israel is here, and that's all I'm going to say. Um, Egypt, uh, when they have their military coup, seizes the seizes control of the Suez, which completely angers the British and French. They hope that they could keep the Suez, because they had uh, they had dug the Suez Canal on Egyptian soil, and so when Egypt uh, overthrows their government and takes it over, uh, the UK and French are not so happy about this. So the UK, the French, and Israel invade Egypt. Um, but the United States and the USSR actually, for once, agree on something. They oppose this war. They do not like that the United Kingdom, France, and Israel are invading. They're particularly mad that the UK and France feel like they have the right to invade this country uh, and invade their sovereignty. And so the United States and the, U and the USSR uh, both oppose this war. This creates what is known as the Suez Crisis, which basically empowers uh, Nasser, who is the... Um, who is the president of Egypt. And so he announces this idea of pan-Arabism after the war, uh, because he gets, essentially the war makes him very popular. He's able to stand up to the United Kingdom and France and work with the United States and USSR uh, for his own interests. So he announces this idea of pan-Arabism. This idea is to unite the Arabic people uh, under one uh, country. And so Syria actually takes up Egypt on this offer, and Syria and Egypt uh, sort of combine um, into just sort of uh, one country. Uh, eventually, uh, coup in Syria overthrows uh, this sort of government within Syria, uh, and Syria then breaks away from Egypt. So pan-Arabism fails to catch on, um, and eventually uh, it sort of just becomes a dead idea. There's if you know anything about the Middle East now, uniting all these countries into one country is not going to happen. And so it really makes sense why this didn't really catch on. Um, and then Israel, because they love to make me talk about Israel so much on this podcast, they launch another preemptive strike. They get word that the Arab nations are going to work together to uh, overthrow the Israeli government and kick them out. So Israel launches a preemptive strike. It is known as the Six-Day War. They seize land from Syria, Egypt, and Lebanon, and Jordan, actually. I forgot to write down Jordan. Uh, they seize land from all these places. They annex more of the Palestinian people into their their, their country, and uh, it just sort of escalates more tensions because Israel, uh, you know, takes the preemptive step of declaring war on all of them. They annex more land. They annex more of... Um, they annex more... Uh, people who speak Arabic, they annex certainly more Palestinian people into their, their country, and this basically heightens a lot of tension within the Middle East, because that's basically the Middle East for you. Moving on to Asia, the United States uh, makes the first step of uh, granting independence to the Philippines. They actually, fun fact, grant independence to the Philippines on July 4th. So, you know, even when we're giving independence to someone, we still have to make it all about us. But the United States grants independence to the Philippines, and then the UK uh, grants independence to uh, British Raj. And so British Raj is going to be broken up into four different countries. They grant independence to Burma, or modern-day Myanmar. 
they grant independence to Sri Lanka, and they grant independence to Pakistan, which is um, at that point, which at that point would just be one country. Today it would be Pakistan and Bangladesh. They are separated. Um, they're basically they're basically on two opposite sides of India, but because they are both Muslim, they are put into one country. I don't know why they are put into one country other than they have the same religion. Their cultures are very different, and uh, the Pakistani people uh, and the Pakistani government completely basically abandon Bangladesh, um, completely ignore it when there is a tsunami. Uh, there's very little relief given to Bangladesh. The story of Bangladesh I find very interesting. Um, but Bangladesh basically has to fight two independence wars, but one for the United Kingdom and then one for Pakistan. And in both instances, they suffer a lot. But um, two Muslim regions uh, between Pakistan and Bangladesh are made, and one Hindu region, which is uh, all of modern-day India, is formed. When the borders are drawn, this sows a lot of division and chaos. Millions of people are displaced because, again, the borders are not drawn... Uh, by the Indian people or the Pakistani people, they're drawn by the Europeans. And so millions of people are displaced. Gandhi himself is assassinated in 1948. Um, but eventually, more and more nations in Asia begin to be granted more independence. We already talked about Sri Lanka and Myanmar. But Indonesia gets independence from uh, the Dutch. And Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia all get independence from France. Uh, moving on to Communist China, Mao's great leap forward policy uh, basically leads to a giant famine. He tries to uh, sort of restructure the entire country very quickly. He forces a lot of industrialists um, out of the urban areas and throws them into farms. They don't really know what they're doing. And so like 60 million people starve to death in China. Uh, Communist China basically is completely isolated from the West at this point. We talked about uh, in the Korean War, they were isolated. Now they are basically like completely cut off from the West. And the only friend they, that they can have uh, is the Soviet Union, another communist country. Um, but eventually, as states across Asia are being granted, the Cold War continues to rage on. Vietnam and Korea, as we already talked about, are caught in the middle of this, caught in a lot of fighting between capitalism and communism. Um, and a lot of countries are forced to pick a side. And not all of them do. In Indonesia resists picking a side, um, but that is not true for most countries. Most countries are are forced to pick a side, uh, and if they don't pick a side, uh, they're sort of left out of the economic zones. They're considered third world countries, and I put air quotes around third world countries because if you actually don't know what third world country means, it means basically any country that wasn't involved in the Cold War is considered the third world country. So that's decolonization for you. So aside from the global foreign policy that's taking place during this time, let's actually talk about the differences between Eastern Europe and Western Europe. So starting with Eastern Europe, uh, the Soviet Union was absolutely devastated by World War II. About one-fourth of all buildings in the, in the Soviet Union were destroyed in the war. And uh, because Stalin is still in power in the Soviet Union uh, well after the war, Stalin continues to use the brutal tactics that he used before and during the war to boost production. By 1947, production was at pre-war levels, and by 1950, it had surpassed them by 40%. New factories, canals, oil fields, and industries were being built, and economic policies, uh, while 
boosting a lot of industrial production and on paper being very good, in practice, they hurt a ton of workers. Uh, cities were often overcrowded because a lot of housing was not only destroyed, but a lot of housing was also not rebuilt after the war. Uh, so a lot of economic policies uh, led towards overcrowding. A lot of people were starving because um, a lot of the fields were destroyed. There were poor harvest uh, right after World War II. And in general, the population had grown so quickly and not enough people were working in agriculture to support the population. And then finally, uh, the Soviet Union was also extraordinarily poor. There were not a lot of social wel welfares uh, for the people to support them, and the people were also uh, paid very little for the work that they did. And so people were just, uh, they were overly sick, uh, they died very quickly, they were poor, they were overcrowded, and they were oftentimes starving. So the Soviet Union is a brutal, brutal dictatorship, um, and under Stalin it is a... a it is a horrible place to live under Stalin. But uh, in 1953, Stalin's rule comes to an end at his death. Um, the book doesn't really go into this, but I always think it's kind of interesting that Stalin's paranoia uh, isolated so many people from him that he actually ended up uh, sending a lot of his doctors to Siberia and into the labor camps in Siberia. And then eventually, um, he actually comes down with a very serious illness and dies from it. So he dies basically due to his own doing. He, he pushes all his doctors away because he's scared that they're going to kill him. And then he actually has to get treatment from them and no doctor is willing to work on him because they're so scared of him. So Stalin uh, kind of does his own undoing. So when Stalin dies in 1953, Khrushchev uh, rises to power and he ends the labor camps. He criticizes uh, pol uh, Stalin's policy of violence and terror and he also opens up intellectual debates and intellectual books and he reduces the power of the secret police and the labor camps. Uh, this begins his policy of destalinization which opens up uh, sort of a lot of turmoil in the Eastern Bloc countries and leadership. Essentially, his criticism of Stalin and sort of his uh, criticism of Stalin-esque communism leads to a lot of people being disillusioned. A lot of people see this as an opportunity to rise up. And in Hungary, Hungarian fighters rise up in 1956. This is the Hungarian Revolution where they try and uh, sort of break away from the Soviet Union and join the Western uh, alliances and economic uh, sort of capitalist systems. Khrushchev sort of realizes that, uh, you know, Hungary is going to break away, and so he sends in a bunch of uh, Soviet soldiers to put down the revolt and sort of brutally suppresses the people within Budapest. And so this is sort of like, this is a big splitting point from the West and the East. We talked about earlier how there was a hope that right after Stalin died, the Cold War would end. Uh, the violent suppression of the Hungarian fighters is sort of a, a show of that the Cold War is not over just because Stalin is dead. Um, Khrushchev is more than willing to continue this fight and the brutal suppression of the Eastern Bloc countries. Economically, uh, Khrushchev attempts to also increase farming during this time period, which mostly fails um, because of just basically... Um, he focuses a lot more money towards military production, and the economy declines because of it. He also tries to get a lot of people uh, to go to the Ural Mountains and out east to farm, which doesn't go all that well. So farming continues to be sort of the um, 
the ugly duckling of, of the Soviet Union because economically they don't really know what to do with them. Lenin had no idea what to do with them. Uh, Stalin had no idea what to do with them. Uh, Khrushchev has no idea what to do with them. Brezhnev and Gorbachev are not going to know what to do with them. The The Russian farmer and certainly the Ukrainian farmer is going to be sort of the, the ugly duckling. They cause a lot of instability just because uh, a lot of leaders within the Soviet Union don't understand how to help them. And so it just it creates a lot of conflict there. Um, but sort of economically, Khrushchev attempts to increase farming. Again, not really able to do that. In terms of foreign policy, he's also pretty, pretty, uh, He's not very tactful in, in foreign policy. Uh, this is seen mostly with the Cuban Missile Crisis, which he handles very poorly, causes a lot of tension, causes a lot of anxiety within uh, the Soviets. And so eventually, the basically, the bureau, the Soviet bureau, who sort of, I guess, elects the Soviet dictators to serve for life, eventually decides to kick Khrushchev out while he's on vacation, and they replace Khrushchev with Brezhnev. And Brezhnev, well, he's going to create a lot of problems and sort of not really address a lot of the problems with the Soviet Union. So Brezhnev uh, eventually replaces um, um, Khrushchev. So that's with the Soviet Union. Let's talk about Eastern European life in general, because they are extremely different. So all of Eastern Europe is basically under the Soviet Union, except for that of Greece, who is part of the West. Uh, they are a part of NATO and a capitalist country. And Albania and Yugoslavia. These two countries, Albania and Yugoslavia, basically liberated themselves in World War II. Uh, they had resistance fighters rise up and liberate their own countries uh, during World War II. And so when the Soviet Union sort of tried to buddy up with them, they rejected this, and they rejected any puppet government that uh, Stalin wanted for these two countries. And so they're, they're, they're weird between uh, the East and the West, and it sort of shows like there is a middle ground that could have been met during this time period, but is not. Uh, where Yugoslavia and Albania, they are communist countries, but they don't subscribe to Stalinism. And in many terms, they, they reject Stalin and his advances to try and take over their economies. Uh, and they're also a little bit more willing to work with the West. They're, they don't have great relations because they are dictators uh, who run their countries. But uh, Albania and Yugoslavia sort of sit on this teetering fence of, or I guess they sort of teeter, not on the fence, but on the Iron Curtain. Um, they're, they're sort of not nicely placed in either one of the, the two camps. And so they just sort of, they, they split mostly with Stalin's paranoia and his genocidal tendencies. Um, so they, they're sort of an exception, but for most of Eastern Europe, they adopt five-year plans, much like Stalin had. Uh, they, try and they try and boost industrial production and they announce collective, collectivized uh, farming strategies. De-Stalinization and less foreign intervention comes with Khrushchev. And so uh, we already talked about Hungary rising up. Poland also rises up. They are a lot less more peaceful, I guess. Or I'm sorry, they are a lot more peaceful. And so when they rise up, they get some autonomy and some limited ability to be able to control themselves and sort of decide what their nation should be. And so in that, they sort of begin to get this 
I, I want to say hybrid, but it's really not that much of a hybrid. It, it's a hybrid with a, a heavy lean towards communism between communism and capitalism. But Poland does see a little bit of reform taking place, not in this chapter, but certainly in the next chapter. They're going to see a lot of reform take place. Moving on from Eastern Europe, let's talk about Western Europe. And uh, Spielvogel refers to this as sort of the revival of the West. Uh, communists for a long time had resisted Nazis in the West, uh, particularly during World War II, and they gained a lot of respect of the people. But after the war, uh, the communist parties, while doing very well originally, slowly begin to shrink off because as the Cold War truly begins and uh, the effects of Stalinism and the effects of communism are sort of seen and uh, made into film and uh, reported on by the radio, um, a lot of people begin to turn away from the communist parties and they begin to shrink. Socialist parties also do pretty well after this, uh, but the socialist parties again do begin to see support dwindle until they sort of begin to reorganize in the 1950s. So socialist parties after the 1950s, they focus more on social and economic equality and less on eliminating capitalism. For a lot of socialist parties in the West, they eliminate their policy of sort of this violent overthrow of the bourgeoisie and eliminating capitalism, instead hoping to see more of a, a true hybrid between um, capitalism and, and communism with a heavy lean towards capitalism. And across Central Europe, we see the rise of the Christian Democrats, who are sort of center-right parties in Germany and Italy. They do very well. Uh, they play to sort of the traditional religious um, roles within these two countries, um, and they're deeply interested in the democratic institutions and sort of the uh, sort of conservative economies that were established after World War II. Um, and across the Western nations, they recover very quickly with the Marshall Plan. By 1950, industrial production is up 30% from before the war. Steel production is up 70% between 1947 and 1950. And full employment is achieved. So the West is quickly revived. They quickly sort of undo their, their leanings towards socialism and communism. Uh, which is seen as sort of the, the as things get better, people are less likely to choose those two extremes uh, and instead are, are more happy with the status quo or at least um, small incremental change instead of communism or socialism. Um, and so eventually, uh, across the West, the general trend is towards stability and a better European front. This is seen, and we'll zoom in right now to France, this is seen with Charles de Gaulle. France's governments right after the war appear too weak to really handle much crisis. Uh, that, this is especially true with uh, the Algerian Civil War, which just sort of hurts France's stability. And so uh, Charles de Gaulle forms the French Popular Movement and wins. The, the Popular Movement is a center-right party. Charles de Gaulle is a center-right politician. And the Algerian crisis, like I said, hurts France's stability as an unstable France sort of ushers in the Charles de Gaulle era, Charles de Gaulle is allowed to rewrite the Constitution. And Charles de Gaulle, being the president, greatly empowers the president in his own uh, Constitution. And de Gaulle also begins to invest in nuclear bombs. Uh, so by 1960, France has a nuclear weapon. Um, Eventually, this nuclear program kind of catch, catches up with Charles de Gaulle, though, and his government is sort of unable to deal with these responsibilities, and it leads to a high deficit, and Charles de Gaulle resigns. Uh, I know I went through this very quickly, but Charles de Gaulle is in power for like 20 years. He is 
extremely important. Uh, his rewriting of the Constitution creates the Fifth French Republic, um, empowers the presidency, really changes a lot about uh, French society, and just sort of resists a lot of the changes that the UK actually does accept with welfare. And so let's actually jump into this. I'm going a little bit out of order, but since I mentioned the UK, let's go right there. So right after World War II, there is a battle between Churchill and the Labour Party about who's going to fight for control. Churchill sort of assumes, like, you know, I'm the guy who led uh, UK through the war. The people will obviously re-elect me. They did not. They did not re-elect Churchill, and Labour Party sweeps the elections, promising welfare reform. And welfare, welfare reform, the United Kingdom does certainly get. The United Kingdom nationalizes the Bank of England, the coal and steel industries, the nationalized public transit and uh, electricity and gas. They passed the National Insurance Act, which is a British form of social security, and they passed the National Health Service Act, which creates socialized medicine. Essentially, uh, the government will, unlike in the United States, uh, the government will sort of pay for your health care um, through a government health care plan, uh, and in return you pay a higher percentage percentage of taxes so the government can provide health care for all of its citizens. Um, that is very different to the United States plan. The United States has a very privatized uh, health service. The British service, even today, is still very socialized. Socialized medicine is one of the most popular things of the United Kingdom. All of these welfare reforms sort of indirectly leads to, lead to decolonization, which we already talked about. Uh, with the UK especially, the UK is unable to pay for a lot of this because the expansion of the bureaucracy and uh, sort of a uh, higher deficit is going to lead to uh, just sort of the inability to economically justify having so many colonies. And so they begin to let some colonies go. Economic problems uh, after the war also lead to a decline as uh, the UK uh, begins to give up its status as a world power uh, in the Suez Crisis, which we already talked about with the Middle East. The UK and France officially lose their status as, well, I mean, there's not really like an official bureau that decides who is, um, you know, a world power and who is not. But sort of by historians, by the time of the Suez Canal Crisis, uh, the UK and France are sort of deemed as not being, um, you know, world powers anymore. They lose that status when they back off when the U.S., the United States and the USSR criticize them for their invasion of Egypt. Uh, and so ultimately, the economic problems also lead to a decline in the world power and a slow recovery and high debts begin to plague a British society. In addition to Britain, we have West Germany, who is now uh, sort of a part of the Western Alliance. It is kind of weird to say that now, because for a very long time, for like the last 400 years of European history, Germany was not a part of Western society. They were very much not. And now West Germany is a part of Western society. So in West Germany, the occupied zones throughout um, well, as time goes on, the occupied zones are granted more freedoms, and eventually each of the three economic zones uh, shared by France, the UK, and the United States are allowed to unite into West Germany by 1949. Uh, their chancellor, it, a lot of his goals are focused mostly on foreign policy. He tries to mend relations with France. He also begins to argue that Germany needs to militarize after the Korean War. 
A lot of people resist this, but eventually it's sort of agreed upon that in the Cold War, Germany is going to need a military to defend itself, and, you know, the West, fearful of a Soviet invasion, is sort of like, well, we kind of have to give in and make sure that we can defend against the evils of communism, even if that means giving Germany the right to remilitarize. So the Korean War sparks uh, militarization in Germany, and Germany also joins uh, NATO in 1955. Also, there is this idea of an economic miracle that takes place in recovery. Uh, despite only having 75% of the population and 52% of the land from pre-war Germany, uh, the West Germany West German production actually is greater than that of pre-war Germany, which included all of Germany. Real wages also double, work hours fall, uh, unemployment is at 0.4%, which is unheard of. Like, uh, typically a strong American economy is about at 3% unemployment. Uh, for West Germany, you have 0.4% unemployment. It is a indeed an economic miracle. And in fact, uh, West Germany actually imports guest workers because they have so many factories and so many jobs that they can actually bring in people from other countries uh, to work and um, benefit in their economy. Denazification also begins right after the Nuremberg trials. The Nuremberg trials are held by the Allied powers to sort of create this international court of justice um, to criminalize what the Nazis did and uh, charge them for a number of crimes. The Nuremberg trials are the most famous, but these trials continue as the world continues to develop throughout the Cold War. Um, and eventually, by the 1960s, Nazism begins to be taught in schools, um, obviously not as a political idea to like, okay, they're not teaching children how to be Nazis, right? But they are teaching them of the failures of Nazism, what Nazism was, and addressing it as, the, as, as a problem that needed to be solved as a shameful part of German history, uh, which you do not always see. Uh, if, you know, the United States has had a, a long history of resisting uh, history that does not paint the United States in a positive light. Moving on to Italy, Italy is now also a part of the West, although I guess you could still consider it sort of part of the Central European club, um, but Italy becomes a republic when voters reject royalty. I believe it, uh, the vote is like 52% of people reject uh, the Italian monarchy continuing, and in the first election, the Christian Democrats, again, the center-right party, wins power for five years. Uh, communist support destabilizes this government, however, as you can imagine, the Italian governments are still going to be pretty unstable for basically all of Italian history. Other governments have been extraordinarily unstable, and this continues even after the war. So Italy experiences a lot of economic, uh, in, or a lot of political instability, but a lot of economic stability, as their uh, economic miracle also happens in Italy, although to a lesser extent. The government controls industries like steel, like they do in the United Kingdom, and millions of southern Italians migrate north for industrialized jobs. So overall, Italy, to a lesser extent compared to Western Germany, uh, does experience an economic miracle as well. And then economically, the West also begins to unite in a European Union. So as the Cold War unites Europe militaristically, there is also a 
uh, sense that we are being united economically. And this is shown when France, West Germany, Italy, and the Benelux countries form the European coal and steel community. This eliminates tariffs and curtails monopolies for coal and steel, basically allowing free trade between these six countries. And then they formed the European Atomic Energy Community to further research uh, and harness atomic energy in a civilian sense. So not nuclear weapons, but instead, um, you know, nuclear power in a more safe and uh, efficient way than it was normally done. And then each signed the Rome Treaty to form the European Common Market. This eliminates customs and trade barriers for all goods, and this eventually is going to evolve into the European Union. So we have the beginning of economic unity and the beginning of sort of erasing uh, tariffs and trade customs and trade borders uh, between all these nations. Then we'll quickly jump to the United States and Canada, although I'm not focusing too much on them because, again, it's a European history class. But the United States continues the New Deal policies of FDR with Eisenhower and then Kennedy and then Lyndon B. Johnson. The civil rights movement happens, you know, greater uh, uh, greater equality happens within the United States for African Americans, and Social Security is passed by the Johnson administration. In addition to the United States, Canada's economy also does very well. The United States uh, gives heavy investment to into the Canadian economy, and Canada also joins NATO, showing that Canada is on the same page as um, as the United States. And then finally, let's end with Western Europe, sort of talking about it more generally. So the middle and lower classes grow in power. Um, a lot more people move to urban areas and gain white-collar jobs, uh, which increases the number of white-collar jobs across Europe. This results in a uh, rise of wages and creates a more consumer-based economy, essentially an economy that is built off people consistently and constantly buying new things, new technology, new appliances. This is traditionally seen in countries that have higher wages, uh, better jobs, more stable governments, more stable economies, because the people can buy and afford things that they don't need, but things that they want. So things like uh, refrigerators, microwaves, and especially cars begin to explode in popularity. Um, about 45 million cars are sold in Europe by this time period, uh, compared to very few cars actually being affordable for most Europeans before World War II. And so uh, this European society that's built on a consumer economy uh, is extremely successful. And a lot of reforms happening within a lot of these countries and this idea of a welfare state uh, being created really helps a lot of people come out of poverty and move into the middle class, which creates a strong sort of thriving democratic process because democracies are built on the middle class. Um, in addition to raising income, time off, and paid vacation days, this helps with mass, mass leisure as all areas basically increase in tourism. About 100 million tourists are moving about Europe each year. Um, and also, just in general, like more activities are able to be done. We'll talk about this more in culture, but sports and just being able to watch sports increases drastically during this time period. Um, and then I alluded to this earlier, but this idea of a welfare state develops across Europe during this time period. So Europe, after the war, gets far more involved in welfare. Uh, this is mostly due to the world wars. The, the governments become a lot more involved in their economies, a lot more involved in protecting their people. 
And after after the World Wars, this continues. So the government grants free health care uh, to many people. Maternity care is given to countries to help boost their populations. Maternity care is essentially, well, it, it results in a lot of things. Helping uh, women, uh, particularly new mothers, uh, having a lot of time off after they give birth, uh, sometimes weeks, sometimes months off, to help mothers uh, raise uh, their children. This can result in new fathers also getting time off during uh, during this time. Sometimes countries will give mothers um, either benefits, tax benefits for having children, or direct payments uh, to help uh, take care of the child. Uh, and this can also uh, just be the simple task of governments encouraging people to have children and just sort of having campaigns to boost populations. This is why, uh, among other reasons, we have a baby boom right after World War II. We also have free or cheaper colleges, which help eliminate the class barriers um, and basically allow the poor and the middle class to get into college. This raises, uh, I think, the number of people who go to college in Europe right after this increases by like 10%. Uh, social services also receive more spending, so this is things like infrastructure and things like that, which basically just help improve the quality of life of citizens. In the UK and West Germany, uh, they exclude work benefits for women. Instead, they pressure them uh, for women to become mothers. Uh, this is not at all true in communist nations. They want women to work. Uh, I think I said this last uh, episode, but... A lot of communist nations have this very equal stance for women. Uh, I, I believe I said it was equally bad for all people, which uh, is very much true. That um, it doesn't matter if you're a man or if you're a woman. Um, it, it, you know, you're you're going to suffer in under communism. So both are expected to do the same thing, and so communist nations uh, extend a lot more social benefits for mothers during this time period. Uh, they provide daycare and maternity benefits uh, far more than the West does. But an exception to that is France, who includes women in benefits and provides uh, free daycare and after-school activities uh, for children to help uh, to help grow their populations, but also have women continue to work in the economy. And then finally, let's talk about the culture of the Western European societies. So as the baby boom immediately after World War II begins to fade, um, less people are being born, mostly due to contraception uh, being more mainstream. The condom and other forms of birth control, like the pill, are decreasing family sizes. And just in general, women are... Uh, less likely to have children uh, because uh, modern medicine and a more industrial society uh, just calls for less people. Uh, you don't need as many people to sustain a family and sustain people through wages. And also, you need less people to raise a family uh, when things like daycare and school are taking up a lot of time uh, for your children. You don't have to constantly be raising your children at this time period. Additionally, women are also working more in society which means less you you really can't have as many children if you're not a stay-at-home parent. And so uh, women are working more, they're going to factories or they're going to white-collar jobs uh, more often, although women are only earning about half or two-thirds of what a man typically gets for that job. Um, and so there's a lot of fight, there's a lot of fighting that's going to take place in the 1970s to try and get women's pay up. I think about now it's around 80%, which is a little bit better, but 
still a lot more work to get done for true equality. Um, by the nineteen by nineteen forty five, Sweden, the UK, Germany, Poland, Hungary, Austria, Czech, Czechoslovakia, uh, the United States, France, and Italy had all given suffrage to women, allowing women to vote. Uh, for a lot of these countries, a lot of them went back on it. So like countries like Germany, Poland, Hungary. Uh, Czechoslovakia had all gone back uh, because they are either a dictatorship or they just uh, had eliminated uh, democracy in their nation or realistically their democracy did not matter anymore. And so women voting was either superficial in some of these areas or just didn't matter um, because dictatorships. So for a lot of Eastern Europe, a woman's right to vote doesn't really matter because nobody's vote really matters, but for Western countries, uh, the right for women to vote is expanded by 1945, and a lot of them uh, begin to sort of move past this and move towards more social and economic equality. So uh, Beauvoir uh, publishes a publishes many books on feminism. She says that society is built for men and that women need to reform society, and this is a major sort of grassroots campaign that will eventually uh, morph into the feminist movement within the 1970s. Um, moving on to art, post-war art is is very different to European art because New York had replaced Paris at this point as the cultural capital of the Western world. This is because a lot of artists, particularly surrealists, uh, fled Europe during World War II, fled the Nazi regime that would suppress them, and they fled to the United States, mostly New York, to continue painting there. So New York replaces Paris as the cultural capital. Um, and so a very New York kind of style of art begins to form during this time period. Abstract expressionalism, which you have definitely seen, uh, becomes very popular. It is uh, described as action painting. It's very, very uh, chaotic and uh, very colorful is how I would describe it. Um, there's not really much of a uh, a method, I guess. Like, the form does not matter. It is it is very much... Um, it, it's very large painting, and it is very sort of violent painting, I, I guess I would describe it. Like, it is... It, there's not a lot of, of form or maturity to it. Uh, it's, it's kind of fun to look at. Um, if you go back, the, the episode... Below this one, in case you didn't see it, was an AP review for art. I talk about uh, abstract expressionalism there, and I also talk about uh, just sort of, I, I give some examples of what it looks like for, for better detail. Also at this time period, pop art begins to grow. You have definitely seen pop art for Marilyn Monroe. It is sort of taking one picture and making it different, uh, a bunch of different ways, using different colors, uh, maybe different styles for it. Uh, which creates this very flashy, colorful uh, art piece of different of the same painting so many times over with different arts and different textures and all these different things. It's it's actually very visually appealing. So um, that's post-war art for you. Post-war literature embraces sort of the meaninglessness of the world. Um, as I was sort of as I was looking back through the culture preparing for the AP test, I've noticed that art always develops first, and then literature and uh, philosophy and religion and music always sort of develop afterwards. So art is sort of paving the way, and then literature is typically a chapter behind. So with literature, imagine you're back towards like the interwar period or World War One, 
you embrace the meaninglessness of uh, the world. The they try and capture sort of the absurd, maintain like this suspense and bizarreness. It shows the disillusions, disillusionment of the world and politics, how people sort of feel like things are just sort of bizarre, things are absurd, things happen for no reason, and it just sort of makes people question what is real and what is not real. The book gives a good example uh, that is sort of difficult for me to explain over a podcast, um, but sort of the the plot point of a lot of literature and acting at this point is sort of focused more on making you question what is happening right now in the scene instead of what is going to happen. That is the suspense that is made. Moving on to philosophy, we have the birth of existentialism, which I actually really like as sort of a, a first of all, a word. Existentialism is, is very fun to say. Um, but as, as sort of a philosophical thought, I think it's uh, maybe one of the better ones, more more positive. It sort of builds on Nietzsche's idea that God is dead, that we've killed God, going back to the interwar period, that, you know, God is dead, uh, humanity is screwed, religion and philosophy and all these things, uh, don't even worry about them because we're, we're destined to kill each other. Um, this sort of takes a more positive view. It says that God is dead, humans are alone in the world, but, but like, don't worry. Don't expect somebody to come and save you. Don't expect things to get better just because, you know, some God is looking down on you. Like, you have to do something about that. And so, like, humans need to help each other and need to look towards hope uh, and find hope in each other. Like, don't look towards religion and some, like, superficial sort of God that may or may not exist. Just look towards yourself do what's right, make your own judgments about how the world should be, and try and do the right thing. Don't look to do the right thing for some he heavenly reward or punishment in the afterlife. Do the right thing because it's the right thing. That's kind of what existentialism is, and I kind of like that thought. Um, moving past existentialism into religion, existentialism sort of shows the decline in religion and how it needs to be replaced with something else. Catholic leaders and figures during this time period try to reform the church. They allow mass to be spoken in sort of the the language of the people instead of Latin. And also Karl Barth uh, sort of reinterprets the Reformation and the Bible and allows sort of uh, sort of reinterprets these things to be more modern instead of uh, antiquated, uh, like the Bible was to so many people during this time period. Um, but nonetheless, these reforms don't really work, so it's not really worth talking about them all that much, because religi religiosity uh, begins to sort of decrease once again during this time period. And then finally, we have Americanization, perhaps the most American of the words uh, to use during this time period. Americanization essentially says that culture, uh, film, art is popularized from America. So films across Europe feature Hollywood actors and actresses. The United States develops and sells TVs across the world to spread news and cultures. Uh, they develop jazz, blues, rock and roll to be spread everywhere. Elvis Presley inspires the Beatles in the United Kingdom, which creates their own sort of Beatles invasion or Beatlemania in the United States. Um, and additionally, uh, many music groups that are formed by Black Americans see rise in popularity in the Civil Rights era, and this sort of influences not only American culture, 
but uh, culture around uh, race across the world. And so this Americanization basically says that um, if you want to find the culture that is dominant, it is no longer uh, the French people like it was uh, during like the time of Napoleon or uh, before Napoleon. It is America. America with its you know flashy Hollywood signs and its New York uh, art. That is the center of culture. If you want to find what is popular and what's going to be the next big thing, you got to look towards America. That is Americanization. And with that, I think that's all I wanted to say. So I'll end it right here. I hope you learned something new and I hope you'll come back for the next episode. Goodbye. <laughs>